and welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Christ in Context. Today we're going to be doing a pretty special episode, at least it's special to me or important to me. Um, We're going to be talking about Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20 specifically. Um, And the the reason why this is special to me is because this is a passage that's been taken out of context, like that I have personally taken out of context quite significantly. And unfortunately, I have probably damaged uh, people in the process and... um, it, I know it, it was really um, damaging for my faith for quite a while. Um, I'll explain kind of what that means in just a second. But uh, before we dive in, I just want to say thanks for listening. Um, I believe Assurance of Pardon, who is another podcast in the Society of Reformed Podcasters, will be doing a similar episode on this passage um, later this week, I believe. Um, they've been doing a great series through hermeneutics, specifically like reformed hermeneutics, and their series has kind of been like similar to stuff that I like to do about, you know, talking about things in context and they're both pastors, so they've been handling it a lot more pastorally and it's been really, really good stuff. So, um, be looking for that later this week. Good stuff. So the verse, um, or the, the passage that we'll be getting into is, as I've said, Matthew 18, 18 to 20. And so this is what the verse is. Um, It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So there's a couple things going on um, and a couple different ways that this gets taken out of context. Um, So for those of you who don't know, and I don't think I've really shared this on the podcast yet, but the church that I was initially saved in, as of right now, I would categorize it as a word of faith church. Um, and I say that carefully and like with a specific idea in mind, the particular idea that I have in mind is not so much, um, like Joel Osteen, um, or Kenneth Copeland in the sense of like monetary wealth, um, because that was never really a huge concern, um, at least for the, for the church. However, there was a very deep concern for prophecy and healing and declaring things. Um, it never really got too bad to a point of like decreeing that, like just calling something into existence, like just entirely arbitrarily. Um, but it was very, very frequent for, um, this church and I was included in this for 
couple years, I mean, most of high school, um, and even a little bit of college, like we, if there was someone who was in pain, we would pray for them. And the way that we would pray would be like a, a declaration, like declaring that the pain has to leave the bones have to be mended. And like this very authoritative, um, you know, every, because we can ask for things in the name of Jesus, then that means that we can just declare things, just say what we want. And if we use in the name of Jesus at the end of it, then it's bound to happen. Right. And so it got really confusing because we would kind of pray for stuff to happen. And when it wouldn't happen, even though we used in the name of Jesus, it would be, I mean, like, tough like really really hard to grapple with and like understand why i'm being taught that i can pray for things in the name of jesus and if i say in the name of jesus then it's going to happen but if uh it doesn't happen then it there's a lot of tension and so the way that that was usually resolved is well there's some type of spiritual healing that's happening or emotional healing that's happening that was more important than the physical healing, which I think is a cop out. I think that's just trying to make out, trying to make up for the type of misleading and acknowledging that your prayer failed because you were not praying. You were trying to command God what to do and that's not how stuff works. And so you're trying to cover up for your own poor leading. So anyways, this passage that we are going through is one that we used regularly, um, specifically to say that whatever is bound on earth uh, will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so what that meant for me in high school was if there was a Say we thought someone, uh, I'll give a specific example. Um, there was a girl in our youth group who had a knee problem. I think it might've been a sports related injury. I don't remember exactly, but she, there was a problem that she had and she was in a lot of pain pretty regularly. And so we would pray for her and command that like the ligaments would be healed. Um, we would bind it up in the name of Jesus and, um, because we were commanding it in that way, um, it should have been bound in heaven. We're bringing, you know, we were bringing heaven to earth and all kinds of really confusing and illogical conclusions that we were trying to make and trying to just demand that this young woman's knee would be healed. Um, this would also kind of get applied to demons uh or like in on the other sense of whatever we loose um you know like setting people free from some type of spiritual bonding declare like or spiritual bondage like declaring that they would be loosed uh from whatever type of bondage they have um all kinds of wonky stuff i think i was stumbling and i said that this was related to like demons so, like if someone had like some type of spiritual problem um, it was also common, maybe not directly in my church, but related churches like the Vineyard or Bethel, um, would do things like 
binding up demons and casting them out, casting out evil spirits. Well, okay, now that I think about it, we prayed for stuff like that pretty regularly. Casting out demons, binding them up in the name of Jesus, things of that nature. Really wonky stuff that I didn't have much of a basis for believing otherwise because this was the church that I got saved in. Um, I got saved in the middle of a massive theological shift. When I got saved at the church, it was a non-denominational, like pretty mainline, even jelly, like uh, just mega church in like in general. And that's, that's kind of what it was. My wife grew up in that church and for most of her life, it was just a mainstream mega church, non-denom, like obviously there were issues here and there that I presently would disagree with because I am a reformed Baptist now, but at the time I got saved and my family got saved before me and, you know, I didn't really have much of a basis. And so we started taking this huge theological shift and it was stuff that I thought would be beneficial because I'm hearing the the pastors and the leaders in the church saying like, yeah, we're going to go deeper. We're going to explore the, the kingdom of God and we're going to um, learn how to be more in tune to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, stuff like that, that there's general language that sounds really, really interesting and really helpful to a new believer but I didn't have any other background. I didn't have anything to compare this to. So I'm just being led along, going with the crowd and, um, you know, trying to embrace everything that I'm being taught. But this isn't exactly the way that it's taught. So I already gave one example of how verse 18 about being is um, taken out of context about binding things on earth will have been bound in heaven, loosing things on earth will have been bound in heaven or will have been loosed in heaven. So in verse 19, and what's interesting is all three of these verses can either be taken out of context collectively as one passage or each verse individually is taken out of context. So verse 19 says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven. And so this is a similar idea of what I was already explaining that if we got a couple people to pray for someone and we all agreed that like this type of healing should happen or this type of freedom needs to happen, then that like, that would be one way to kind of rationalize like why someone should have been healed. Um, and like the prayer that we're having. And so a, a bunch of nonsense, um, Verse 20, though, takes a little bit of a different route, especially when it's taken just as itself. So verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So this one, I have a kind of funny story. So in high school, towards the end of my high school career, I was junior or senior in high school, and we um, had a group of students, we were all good friends and we were like, yeah, let's just start hanging out. Let's start uh, doing a Bible study. So we'd go to church together on Sunday morning, like sit together, have a good time and then uh, do our thing for the rest of the afternoon. And then Sunday night we would go to someone's house and we would do a Bible study. Well, as we were doing this Bible study, we would say, 
okay, well, there's two or three of us gathered in the name of Jesus, which means that he's here. Um, and so that means that we are a church. <laughs> and so we would take this and kind of just blindly say that, you know, we were gathering as a church, which in one sense is is true that wherever there are believers gathered, they are part of the invisible church. But there's a distinction to be made between the united invisible church throughout the whole world and local churches. And we were blurring that line. This is also taken out of context if we had two or three people to pray together. If we just got a couple people to pray together, then it was guaranteed that that prayer would work because then Jesus would be there listening. He'd be in our midst. He'd be, it it was basically another way of trying to force Jesus's hand into something. And so, um, this is, this is a damaging way to understand the text because then it kind of, uh, misapplies. Like if I pray by myself, is it just kind of like a 50, 50 shot that Jesus is going to hear me? Like what, I should only pray if there's two or three people. Like I should only be having my prayer life in that sense, in a community of a couple people. And so in my personal life, this whole passage has been taken super out of context. Um, and it was very un- unhelpful, very damaging, um, not just for me, but uh, because of the way that I had it twisted in my head, I'm sure that I accidentally and unknowingly hurt people by the way that I was trying to like out out of my own intention, I was trying to do a good thing. I was trying to be helpful. And yet that's not the way that it happened. It ended up probably being more damaging than good at some points. And so we asked the question, like, what is the, the context within, uh, like surrounding, um, this passage And so the whole context that Jesus is talking about is church discipline. And so in verses 15 through 17, it'll give us a bigger idea of the point that he's trying to make. So he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then immediately following is truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, etc. And so this is crucial for our understanding of how we interpret verses 18 through 20. And before we get into um, interpreting, I guess, well, no, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. There, there's an interesting construction in Greek with, um, the binding and loosening. So I'll get to that in just a second. The way that, um, Jesus is explaining this is not arbitrary. It's not new. All of his disciples were Jewish. they knew what to expect. And so, uh, or they knew what to expect as far as like Jewish, 
um, discipline, Jewish legal, um, the way that the legal system worked. And so um, Jesus is founding everything off of legal principles found in the Pentateuch or legal principles found in the first five books. So he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. So there's a one-on-one. If you know that your brother has sinned, and some later manuscripts will add sin against you. So either if it's a direct sin against you, I would say that if it's just sin in general, and you are aware of that, aware of that, show him his fault in private. Don't make a huge spectacle of shaming him, but show him that this is sin and he should repent from that sin, which is a very loving and gracious act. Um, you're not trying to shame them. It's it's motivated by love. You're trying to encourage them to um, be in right relationship with God. And so if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And then verse 16 continues, but if he does not listen to you, you know, maybe he tries to shake it off and say, no, I, I don't think it's very sinful or um, maybe listens to you physically, but doesn't actually let it change his heart. Then you take two, one or two more with you because one or two plus you is two or three. And so this is assuming that the one or two also are under the understanding that this person is in sin. They have witnessed it. They know what's going on. And so then he, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19 verse 15. So he says, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So what Jesus is founding this on is that the way that the legal system within ancient Israel was designed is not going to be much different from the way that the legal system for the church in the sense of a fair trial. So a fair trial is basically there's two or three witnesses. Um, It's not just one person trying to get the other person in trouble because if you have two or three witnesses, then it's more likely that it's actually uh, a reputable source. It's not just one person with, you know, who's got beef with another person and they're trying to get them punished. But, uh, you know, and then it also says so that every fact may be confirmed. And this is to test the different sources. And if it, it wasn't just listen to two or three people, they all said that it happened. Okay, cool. Whatever. I believe you because there's two or three people. No, it's not just because there's two or three people, but it's to rigorously test these two or three people and see if the stories match up. If they all, if all two or three of them say different things, then odds are it's not going to go well. It's not going to be taken as an authoritative case against this person. 
So verse 17 continues where Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So notice the progression of privacy, a couple witnesses, and then the rest of the local church. And so this is a, this is not under the understanding of public shame, but this is under the understanding that we are trying to bring this person to repentance. So if he refuses to listen even to the church, so this is, the whole church should be exhorting and encouraging this brother or sister to repent, to be restored to Christ. Let him, if if he still does not listen, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what does that mean? That simply just means that this person is not any more a part of a, a part of the church. And so I think that what Jesus is doing when he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector is he's drawing the distinction from the Jewish understanding of how a Gentile and tax collector was totally separated from the nation of Israel or a, uh, like a, a national Israelite. And so to be as a Gentile and a tax collector means to separate, like that this person is separated. They are no longer a part of the local body. And so there's, this is all very, very important for how we understand what the next couple verses say. So the next couple verses we've already read and gone through a couple times, but now that we understand that the previous three verses have been talking about uh, discipline within this new inaugurated um, church body, this new, like how the kingdom functions, um, how, how justice functions in the kingdom. And so Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in, in heaven. And so it's really, really interesting about how this is phrased. And they, the translators try to do a good job at um, translating this because it's really difficult the way that it's constructed. So it's whatever you bind on earth is a, um, so this is a subjunctive, which in Greek is just the, it can be either the way of talking about possibility. It can also be the way of talking about purpose Um, And so in this case, it's talking about um, the way that it's kind of communicated is as if it's probability. So whatever you hypothetically would bind on earth, um, and then it's a future as tie will be, and then bound is a perfect tense. And so the way that the perfect tense functions in Greek is... It's a past tense that has been completed. So that's why they translate it as have been bound. And it's also a passive uh, perfect. So it will have been bound. It will be have been bound in heaven. So it's really awkward wording to translate it literally in English. Um, And so the NASB says shall have been, um, but it's, a, you know, similar language. 
shall have been bound in heaven. And so the idea is that this has already been done. Now, what does that mean? And it's the same kind of construction with loose. Um, there's a subjunctive and then there's a, a future as tie and then the perfect passive. And so the way that this is constructed is explaining that whatever you as the leaders of the church decide to do, then uh, they it will have already been done. Now, why is that? Because the righteous judgment of God's people should be in line with God's law. And what's interesting as well is earlier in this passage, so this whole passage is, um, the whole chapter is talking about the restoration of God's people. And so verses um, 12 to 14 have some really interesting stuff. And it's another passage that gets taken way out of context. Um, But it says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99, which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now this is crucial that he says, not that one of these perish, because at the beginning we've got this idea that there are a hundred sheep that belong to this shepherd. And this shepherd being given a group of sheep, sheep doesn't will not allow for one of them to perish and so he goes and searches for the one who goes astray so the leaving of the 99 is i know the wonderful song reckless love which is actually a terrible song um because god's love by definition cannot be reckless but that's a conversation for another day. Anyways, so the the way that this passage about the 99 and the 1 should be interpreted should be with the rest of the following verses. And the way that the following verses should be interpreted is with the previous verses. And so when we hold these together, we're understanding that there is an idea of restoring God's people to himself. Um, he will not lose one. In other words, God has a group of people that he has chosen before he founded the earth that he will not allow to go astray for eternity. He will save them. He will keep them. No one can take them out of his hand. And so the next passage after the 99 and the 1 is about... um, Jesus giving a practical example. If your brother sins, go and show him. So the way that he's further explaining the brother sinning and showing him his fault is, so this is following the 99 and the one, which means that uh, the, the brother who has sinned is analogous to this sheep who has gone astray. And so the whole intention of going and showing them their fault in private and then 
with two or three witnesses. And then um, with the rest of the church, the whole idea is that we're trying to bring this one sheep back. We're trying to keep them in the church, everything that we do. And so if this person refuses to listen, then it is understood that this person never was a part of the actual group of sheep. This person was never part of the 100. So that's why Jesus can say that whatever you bind on earth, whatever, whether you choose to retain a brother or if you choose to release a brother, someone who has been a part of the church, if you choose to keep them or if you choose to release them from the church, um, whatever decision you make should be in accordance with what God has already written in the book of life in heaven, that uh, those who leave the church were never part of God's people. And maybe there's some who leave the church and then it takes leaving the church to bring them back. Um, But the idea is those who permanently leave the church. And so it's harder to understand in our context because people can just leave the church and then come back and there's not really a bunch of consequences. They can leave one church, go down the street, go to the next church and basically be compulsive sinners and not have any consequence for it. But the idea in Jesus's day was that if you sent someone away from the church, like they had no community to continue to grow as believers. And we see later throughout church history that um, when the church, like the church in Rome kind of merged, there was, if you were excommunicated from the church, you were basically excommunicated from your entire country, which was not a good thing. You needed your country. You needed somewhere to live. Uh, And so it was a lot bigger of a deal than it might be now. So to be let go as a Gentile or a tax collector is a serious, serious issue. It's not something that should be taken lightly. And so the question now arises, like, how do we apply this? Um, I've already been explaining that this is the idea of retaining and releasing the members of the church or um, people who have been a part of the church should be in agreement with uh, the law of God, the way that God ordains things. And there's also um, a couple paragraphs from the 1689. And I don't think I've ever read anything from the 1689 on this show. Um, but I am a reformed Baptist. I confess the 1689. And so, um, I'm going to read chapter 26, paragraphs seven and 12 from the 1689 to every church gathered in this way, conforming to Christ's mind as declared in his word, he has given all power and authority that is in any way necessary to conduct the form of worship and discipline that he has instituted for them to observe. He has also given them commands and rules to use and carry out that power 
and that power rightly and properly. So basically, uh, anytime that the church gathers, they are trying to, the goal is to conform to Christ's mind um, as clearly revealed through scripture. And there is power and authority in the church. There's power and authority in the way that the elders and uh, worship is conducted. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, uh, if there's discipline that he has instituted for them to observe, like there's power, there's authority in that discipline uh, based on the local church. And so, all, so paragraph 12, all believers are obligated to join themselves to local churches when and where they have the opportunity. Likewise, all who are admitted to the privileges of a church are also subject to the discipline and government of it, according to the rule of Christ. So the idea is that Christ is ruling through his church. And because that is what's going on, when there is church discipline that is being enforced through the binding of a believer or releasing of an unbeliever, um, Christ is reigning through his church. He is perfectly and sovereignly allowing us to make decisions uh, based on the authority that he's given us. And so it's a really, really cool, intricate um, connection that he has made between us and him. But it is ultimately Christ who is ruling through his church. So I hope that all of this makes sense. I hope that it kind of frees us up from some of the burdens that are placed on us. If, you know, maybe you have heard this passage taken out of context. And for me, it was really burdensome because it meant that I had to declare things to be loosed or bound. And if I really wanted something to happen, then I needed to get a gathering of believers, uh, at least two or three of them. And it's just a really, really damaging and burdensome understanding of the text. And it's not faithful to the way that the text should be understand understood. So I hope that this is freeing for us. And it also um, humbles those, those who are in places of leadership and authority. Um, I know that I believe God has called me to that position. Hopefully Lord willing, one day I will be in that position. Um, but it's not something that I want to take lightly, um, but it's something that there is a um, level of comfort that it is God who is ultimately the one who has made the decisions. He is the one who has declared the end from the beginning. So I I hope this is helpful in understanding this. And um, if you have any questions or something you want me to explain more, feel free to reach out to me on social media or email me at christincontextpod at gmail.com. Um, I'm hoping that later during the winter, during Christmas break, I will be able to actually do like a mini series. Um, even while I'm still doing the Zechariah series, I want to also do a mini series through, um, stuff about word of faith. Um, you know, like how do people in the word of faith interpret the Bible and why is it wrong? Um, 
there's a couple people I have in mind that I want to have on the show that I think would be super, super cool and super insightful. So um, I hope that's something to be looking forward to in about a month or two. So until next time, thanks for listening and read your Bible, bro. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out reformpodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or doctrinaldiscipleship.com.